the Sunday Sermons Podcast. The story about Jephthah begins in the book of Judges, chapter 10 and verse 6, with these words, again, again the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were not just worshiping one God, they were worshiping several gods. They worshiped the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and the Philistines. And as a result, God became very angry with them and delivered them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And the scripture says that those two nations shattered and crushed them during the year that Jephthah's story begins. For 18 years, the Amorites had oppressed all of the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. And the Ammonites also then crossed the Jordan uh, to wage war against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. And that's when the Israelites admitted their sin and started calling on their God for help. God reminded them of many times in the past when he had saved them from their enemies. And then he reminded them that they had fallen away from him and forsaken him to serve other gods and told them to cry out to those gods to save you. Well, in their repentance, they told God, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And they got rid of their foreign gods among them and they served the Lord. And then the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer and begin leading them back to himself and leading them then to Jephthah, who would defeat the coming Ammonite attack. Now the leaders in the, peop- in the area of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all of us who are in Gilead. And that's when Jephthah is first introduced in the scriptures. We're told that Jephthah is a mighty warrior. However, he is the son of his father Gilead and a child of his father's affair with a prostitute. Now Gilead's wife went on to bear several other sons and when they grew up, then they determined that Jephthah was not going to have any part of the inheritance in the family because he was the son of another woman. And so they drove him away and he went and settled in the land of Tob. And there he put together a group of what the scriptures call scoundrels, but in essence what they were, they were uh, mercenaries that got together to uh, be hired to accomplish political and military gains. Well, it appears that the leaders of Gilead couldn't find anyone among themselves who would volunteer to be their leader, so they go to Jephthah, and they ask him to come and be their commander to come and fight the Ammonites. Now, Jephthah's response was, well, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Well, there was no apology given, but the leaders of Gilead said, nevertheless, we're turning to you now 
Come with us and fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Now Jephthah found that hard to believe, and so he asked, If I come and defeat the Ammonites, will I really be your head? And they said, (laughs) The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. And so Jephthah went with them, and the people of Gilead made him their head and the commander over them. Now the tables have turned for Jephthah. He has gained a higher status and authority over his brothers who refuse to accept him and treat him as their equal. As commander, Jephthah first tries some diplomacy. He sends messengers to the Ammonite king to ask, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? And the king responded saying essentially, well, when Israel came out of Egypt, They took away my land, so give it back peaceably. (laughs) Well, Jephthah again sent messengers back to the Ammonite king with a very well-written diplomatic letter saying that the land had originally belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites, and that God had helped them defeat the Amorites and gave them that land. But the king of Ammon paid no attention to the letter. The scripture then says, So the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and he advanced against the Ammonites. And on his way to battle, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, saying, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Well, the Lord did help Jephthah, and he devastated 20 towns in the Ammonite kingdom, and he, he brought the Ammonite kingdom completely subdued. But when he returned home, his only child, a daughter, was the first one to come out of the door of his house to greet him, dancing with timbrels celebrating the victory. And Jephthah sees this and he tears his clothes and he cries out, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot break it. I want you to listen to the daughter's response. She said, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I never will marry. Well, Jephthah granted her request and after two months she returned to her father And he did to her as he had vowed. One final episode in the life of Jephthah shows another level of the depth to which Israel had fallen spiritually. Shortly after his victory over the Amorites, the Ephraimites uh, called themselves to battle and they came to Jephthah saying, 
why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling to us to go with you? We're going to burn your house over your head. (laughs) Jephthah answered that when he and his people were fighting the Ammonites, he called, but they did not come to his rescue. So he said, I crossed over the Jordan to fight the Ammonites, and God gave me the victory. So why have you come to fight me? But then in the midst of the Ephraimites' anger, they spoke a very demeaning slur, and they said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. So what does Jephthah do? He calls together the men of Gilead to fight against the Ephraimites. Now they were... Gilead, uh, Jephthah and his group were defeating the Ephraimites. They were capturing them, but they even captured the fords that would lead back across the Jordan, back into the land of Israel. And all of those Ephraimites who were trying to run away and get back home when they came to those fords, they spotted who was really an Ephraimite and really should not cross. They would say, Say Shibboleth. And if they said Sibboleth, because they could not pronounce the S-H, they killed them. So that day, Jephthah and his crew killed 42,000 Ephraimites. These are his brethren. These are fellow Israelites. What's he doing? Well, now you know the story of Jephthah. I want to stop here and talk about the situation that, uh, that existed in Israel that necessitated another judge to rescue Israel again. But I want us to look at some of the lessons that we can learn, and some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious. As with all of the other judges that we have studied and will study in this series, Jephthah's rise to become a judge over Israel is directly related to Israel's falling away from their covenant with God and needing to be rescued from their enemies. And the book of Judges and actually much of the Old Testament is about the Israelites and their downward cycle of unfaithfulness. Well, let's talk about lessons we can learn. Lesson number one, disobedience never turns out well. Okay, obvious, really obvious. But what we need to understand is that Satan is always working to lead God's people into forsaking the lordship of God in their lives to pursue other counterfeit pleasures and lifestyles. And the result is never as beneficial as the temptation makes it appear. The result is never good. It always brings about oppression and ends up more costly than they ever thought. It's the same in our lives if we follow that. Listen, in his covenant with Israel, God promised all sorts of blessings and protections if they were faithful. But God had also made it clear that he would withdraw all of his blessings and the protection if they rejected him and turned to worship the gods of the people around them. 
However, idol worship during that era and even now required less of people. It had less restrictive commands and sinful pleasures that were part of the worship of those false gods. And people usually chose which god to worship by which kind of worship appealed most to their sinful nature. But Israel eventually comes to the point of distress and realize the pleasures and the lifestyles they have chosen cannot protect them. They lose property, they lose lives, and their misery increases. People, disobedience never turns out well. Lesson number two is a good lesson. God always honors repentance. Now Israel's unfaithfulness followed a cycle of gradually turning to other gods and then going to full scale rejecting the worship of God and in the suffering of the consequences of their unfaithfulness and losing God's blessing and protection just as God said and being overcome by the armies of other nations who worship the same false gods that they were worshiping. But rather than turn quickly back to worshiping God, they would go several years suffering loss of property and life before they would repent and call upon God to deliver them from their oppression. But even after they eventually repented and God relieved their self-inflicted consequences, they would eventually go back to rebellion and worship other gods of the peoples around them. All I can say is we have an awesome God who forgives. In spite of the hurt that God suffers when we do wrong, the Bible promises us as Christians, and God had promised it to them too and showed this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. What do you say? When Israel was in distress and they came to their senses and the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer, he delivered them. It's the same for us. If we will repent and quit serving our sinful nature and return to living obediently and lovingly and serving our God, he'll forgive us as well. But don't abuse that grace and that love and that forgiveness. You know, in Romans chapter 5, Paul was talking about where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. And so he starts chapter 6 by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I like the Ken James translation of that. God forbid. You know, that's not the way we do things. So, but if we do repent, he's there to forgive. Just don't abuse it. Because you develop the same cycle that Israel had. Fall away, repent, come back. Fall away again, repent, come back. It's a cycle that does not end well. It gets worse. Lesson number three. You probably picked up on this, but don't make 
foolish vows. We already know that none of the judges that God used to deliver Israel from their enemies were great examples of character and wisdom. Most of them had more courage than smart. But Jephthah's vow was really foolish and stupid. Know why? He's mainly calling on God to get what he wanted. He wanted revenge to rule over those who had driven him away. He wanted advanced social standing and authority to be their ruler. And also, his motive really had nothing to do with wanting to glorify God. The fourth thing is, it's a false view of God to try to make a deal with God, especially for selfish, self-serving purposes. Now, I know we tend to want God on our terms and for our purposes, but we don't get God that way. That's how we get false religion. It's pick and choose, cut and paste, decide what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe, and in the end, what we get is a false God created in our own image. It doesn't work. Now, you only get a relationship with God on His terms. Now, you have two choices, take it or leave it. But you can't change the terms of engagement with God. He's been very specific about how to enter into and maintain that relationship. We need to follow those. But furthermore, I want to ask you, <laughs> when I read, what was Jephthah thinking? My goodness, God laid specific commands about what kind of, of burnt offerings would be accepted. And it would be so unlikely that a sheep or a goat or a young bull would be the first one coming out of his house to greet him. What would probably be the one coming out would be a wife, a child, a servant, and he's going to offer them as human sacrifices, as a burnt offering to the Lord? I don't understand it. Was he really making a vow that he couldn't fulfill? You know, I came to Christ late in my teenage years. When I got to Bible college and was reading this story about Jephthah, I thought, <laughs> you know, surely God won't have him keep this vow. But in Numbers, the 30th chapter, verse 2, one of the laws that God gave Moses to give to the people was this. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Whoa. And again, in Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter, verses 21 and 23, Moses' law says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord with your own mouth. All I can say is, people, be careful about making vows to God. He expects you to keep them. Let's go to lesson number four. 
Always choose love and unity. This is so important for us. Can you believe the reaction of the Ephraimites? Coming over all upset with, with Jephthah, you went to battle and you didn't call us. We're going to burn your house down with you inside it. Great love among the brethren of the Israelites. But what was Jephthah's response? <laughs> oh my, Jephthah wasn't any better. He calls on all of his people from uh, in Gilead and uh, he starts fighting then the Ephraimites. Now, he ends up killing 42,000 of his fellow Israelites. Great love among the brethren there, huh? Wow. Unity and love for one another are to be the most important character qualities for God's people, especially the body of Christ. Jesus prayed that all of those who would believe on him through the preaching of, of, of the word, that they would be one, as he and the Father are one. And in Jesus' last night with his apostles, he gave them a new commandment. He said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Well, that raises the bar, doesn't it? And he said, by this love for one another, loving like I loved you, all will know that you're my disciples. Now, I'm sure that we all know of congregations that have split, divided over differences of opinion on issues. I met a man that I admired so much, very wise minister. I think he diagnosed the real problem right at its root. He said this, this is Carl Ketcherside, by the way. He said, churches don't divide over brethren having differences of opinion and insisting on having their way. He says, they divide because they lose their love for each other. And they just can't stand to be with each other. How sad. How many people has this sort of behavior turned away from Christ? Now, I don't know how many times that I have thanked the Lord for Morrison Hill Christian Church. I mean that. I really do. I like to brag on you to other people. I see such remarkable love for each other in this membership and such good relationships and such unity with us all wanting to be the people that God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do. May it always be. Always choose love and unity. Lesson number five, have no other gods before me. The very first of the Ten Commandments in God's covenant with, with Israel was this, you shall have no other gods before me. Now there was great wisdom in this, and for us as well as for Israel, and it's based on two very important truths, common sense. First, there is no other God. God is the only God. That's true. All other gods are produced by mankind's rejection of the truth and their corrupt imagination and their sinful desires. The second truth, 
because these gods are non-existent, they are powerless to improve your situation in any way. They can't protect you. They can't bless you. They can't do good. <laughs> the pagans had to have some sort of visual representation of their gods to make it seem like they were more real because they only existed in their imagination. So they formed images of these gods. But still, the images were just like their imaginary god. They were lifeless. But they were formed with men's hands. And so as Isaiah said, they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. Israel's unfaithfulness followed this cycle, like I said, gradual turning to other gods, but then going to full scale rejecting the worship of God and in the end suffering the consequences of their own unfaithfulness. Then they'd repent, then they would call on God to deliver them from their oppression. But even after they eventually repented and God relieved their suffering, they would eventually go back to rebellion and worship the gods of the peoples around them. In Psalm 95 verse 10, God said of Israel, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. Is there a lesson in Israel's history for us? In Paul's letter to the problematic church in Corinth, Paul said, these things, and he's referring first of all to everything that Israel did being delivered from Egypt, but it applies all the way all through the Old Testament. He says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And he exhorts, don't be idolaters as some of them were. What was their problem back then? What made them turn to these other gods? Well, they either lacked faith that God would provide for their needs, or they weren't pleased with the provisions that God provided. They wanted less restrictions, less stringent commands, and the sinful pleasures of worshiping other gods. People, we have idols in our world today as well. Not the kind that they had with these little images and so forth. In the modern civilized world, an idol can be anything that dominates our lives and is the major influence of our decisions. But many of them are crafted by man's hands, but they're not in the shape of animals, fish, or birds. The modern day idols are things that provide pleasure, entertainment, status, materialism, Worldly pleasures as higher priorities than our seeking God to be first place in our life and building and strengthening that relationship with Him. Now making our main quest to do these things does not improve our lives without changing the consequence. We start worshiping these idols I mentioned, it doesn't improve our lives altogether because it damages our life in many other ways. Many of our modern day idols seductively promote immorality. They damage relationships with others. They produce harmful relationships with others. 
And while they may improve our standard of living in some areas, they will complicate our standard of living in many other areas. They give us a false security that they cannot, because they cannot control worldly events to increase or protect our physical or our financial security. And since they're created by Satan's guidance and deception, they corrupt mankind and draw us away from seeking God and serving Him. Now, here's where I want you to listen. If you haven't listened till now, please listen closely here. Here's what happened to Israel, and I want, to see, I want you to see this can happen to us. God would glorify himself in love, in power, in faithfulness, and in blessing, and uh, blessing the, the people that served him faithfully. And they would serve him faithfully for a while. But listen closely. During times of peace, prosperity, security, and ease, obedience becomes a ritual. And devotion becomes less sincere, less important, less personal, and less an expression of love and thankfulness. What happens is that obedience becomes a burden. And we don't want to obey. It's another restriction. And then our sinful nature begins to look for other pleasures and enjoyment in everything the world has to offer. Now, the mistake is, if we lose this sense of how much we need God, and we neglect our need during these times of ease and security, we're heading for trouble. We neglect the disciplines that are necessary to strengthen our relationship with God and keep us faithful and keep us growing spiritually. And Satan just watches and waits just for the right time and then he'll begin offering a sequence of temptations, little ones at first, but they grow bigger and bigger and if we don't see what's going on and flee from the very appearance of godliness or of evilness, we will be prey to sin. You can't let that cycle go. During these times of peace and ease and security when everything's going well, that's the time to build your relationship with God, secure your relationship with God, serve your God in the ways that he's called us to serve. And if instead... Our, our obedience becomes a burden. We're in trouble. And we can enter that same cycle that Israel went into. That's why the writer of Hebrews exhorted his writers or his readers saying this, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. 
Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. Are you in a cyclical relationship with the Lord? Goes good for a while, fall away, come back. Oh my goodness. Do you need to make a decision to end this? Do you need to come and pray? What, 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 about, what about these lessons here? Let, let me go again. Stop disobeying. You can see from Israel, you will develop a cycle on top, going down, but your lows are going to get lower and lower and lower. Be sure your sin will find you out. Live your faith. Repent if you need to. Acknowledge your sin. Don't hide your sin. Look at what it's doing to you, your life, your family, your relationship to God. And don't make any foolish vows. You think through what you need to do. And you call upon the Lord on His terms. Submit to Him on what He wants for your life. And brethren, always, always, always choose love so that we can maintain the unity that God wants us to have. Keep yourself from idols. Refuse to let anything be more important than loving and serving the Lord. And above all else, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and serve Him. If you have a decision to make, I encourage you, make it today. Stop the cycle. Maybe you've been contemplating for some time putting membership here with our congregation. Can I brag on them again? You'll find a great group of people here that have love for one another and a love for the Lord. We'd love to have you be a part of this. But whatever your need, this is an invitation to him if you want to make a decision and make that public, we urge you to do so. So we stand and sing.